Well, let us now turn in God's holy word this afternoon to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We read as our scripture passage, verses 1 through 8a, the first uh, 7 and first part of verse 8 as our scripture passage from 1 Corinthians 13. And our text is from verses 6 and 7 of God's holy word, indeed, his holy will for our lives. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Those last two verses comprise our text. We notice the word love at the beginning of verse 4, and we drop down to verse 6, and we need to include the verse, uh, that, that word love as well at the beginning of 6 and 7, so that it reads, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. Dear congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we study the various qualities of love that we have stated here, that are stated here in our text, And whether we look at these qualities of love from merely a negative perspective, as we see Paul using that word, um, not, love does not behave rudely, love does not envy, love does not seek its own, or whether we look at these qualities of love from a positive perspective, so, so that Paul says, for example, love suffers long, love is kind, Love rejoices in the truth. No matter how we describe these qualities of love, we realize that they are not merely human qualities at all, but they are really the gift of God that he has given to his church and to, and to his believers. We see that the love that, God, that, that we would have here described is a love that flows from God himself. It is not really a love of the world at all, but a love that that comes through the working of the Holy Spirit within us and Jesus Christ dwelling in our hearts. Now where we see the word love mentioned in verses uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, we could just as easily put in there the word for Jesus Christ because he himself is the epitome of love. So that we could possibly read here, Jesus suffers long, Jesus is kind, Our Lord Jesus does not envy, he does not rejoice in iniquity, but Christ, he bears all things and he believes all things, he hopes all things, Jesus endures all things for us. Jesus never fails. His love, of course, is perfect and it cannot fail. 
So what then could this mean for us? Because Paul is, of course, writing to the churches. He's writing to Christians like you and I. Well, that would introduce our theme, that we are therefore to love one another in a way that describes Jesus' own love to his people and his own love for the world. Our theme this afternoon, congregation, love one another with Christ-like love. It is to say, just like Jesus Christ loves his people. And our theme this afternoon suggests two, ba- two basic ideas or thoughts here. The first we look at is love's uh, high moral ground. And then secondly, from our text, love's enduring benevolent character. First, let us see love's high moral ground. And there we note only verse 6. Paul writes to the church of Corinth, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. See how iniquity and truth here are contrasted basically as complete opposites. Now, other translations of the Bible suggest instead of the word iniquity, the word wrongdoing or the word evil, or the word unrighteousness. So we might read that uh, we're, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, love does not rejoice in evil, but in every case it rejoices in the truth. The Greek word in our text for iniquity is really the word for unrighteousness. Our Lord Jesus himself did not rejoice in iniquity or in unrighteousness, but he rejoiced always in the truth. And so true love of God in our hearts can only rejoice in that which is right and godly and holy and never in the opposite, namely evil or unrighteousness or iniquity. And of course, that word rejoice, we all understand it's a word that means to be happy, to be thankful, to praise God for something, to delight in something. Well, we may never be happy with unrighteousness. We may never rejoice in that which is evil. We may never be sympathetic to that which uh, is, uh, is wrong. We must always delight in that which is right and good and proper. We cannot rejoice in the unrighteous behavior of a person. We cannot rejoice in the evil of a son or a daughter we have that wants to go his own way. We we cannot do that because that is not demonstrating love for them. We cannot in any way love what is deceitful and what is untrue. And I need not to remind you of the crisis situation we've been living in in the past uh, year almost where we often do not know, we we do not know who to believe or what media outlet is really speaking the truth about the situation we are in. We don't know whether we should trust any politicians because of the things they might say to us, as if they are hiding what really needs to be said and told to us to dispel fear within our society. We are surrounded by misinformation on all sides and half-truths and lies, and, and that real truth seems to remain covered up. We are not to love these things because Paul says we are not to rejoice in iniquity. And so much of what is iniquity is grounded in lies and falsehood. Yes, the works of Satan himself. And so there's no high moral ground here, is there, in our present circumstances where lies and deceit 
and in, an inconvenient truth is covered up. This breeds instead frustration and distrust and even anger. <clears throat> oh, brothers and sisters, how important it is to know, verse 6, that the true love of God does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. In the truth. And so we see how God's love for us, God's love in Christ, paves the way for that high moral ground of living righteously and honestly with truthfulness and with integrity because it produces and holds fast this high standard of right, which is none other than what we have in God's holy law. True love rejoices in what Jesus Christ himself loved and that, of course, was the law of his heavenly Father, those precious Ten Commandments. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but in the truth. Well, what does that mean then for one another? If we are to deal with our neighbor, if we are to treat him in a true and a right way, we may never deal deceitfully with him. We may never be hypocritical toward him. We may not treat him with arrogance or in a demeaning fashion, but always deal with our brother and sister, our neighbor, truthfully, because that is what we are to delight in. We are to deal with him honestly, and that will ensure also that that character of humility and kindness and respect for him will come through. That goodness of our hearts will come through for him, this whole idea of benevolence that we will see in our second point. This is love's high moral ground that is created as we practice what Paul preaches here, what he writes here in verse 6 when he's speaking about Christian love, says, this love, this divine love does not rejoice. It's not happy with iniquity. It's disgusted with iniquity. But here is what it rejoices in. Paul says, in the truth. There is such a thing as truth. Hard to be told at times, so often rejected and not spoken. And yet it must be said because it is the truth. And again, if we would look to our Lord Jesus Christ, for example, we would see that throughout his ministry, the Lord Jesus never took pleasure. He never delighted in unrighteousness. He never delighted in the wickedness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He always uh, sought to, to teach them correctly and to discipline them properly with his word of truth. The Lord Jesus never took pleasure in people being cheated and, and uh, lied to. The Lord never rejoiced in seeing a brother fall and say, ha ha, it serves you right. The Lord never dealt with people that way. Jesus did not delight in a person's failure or his wrongdoing. Otherwise, he really would have wished them evil, right? Look how he treated the woman who was caught in adultery. He didn't say, serves you right, you wicked woman. You're, woman, you're getting what you want. He dealt with her truthfully by saying, go and sin no more, that he would bring her to repentance. Our Lord never rejoiced in evil. And if that was the case with him, so much it needs to be with us, brothers and sisters. We who go by the name of, of Christian. 
And so we must never be, be tempted to spread false rumors or to gossip in a hateful manner with regard to another person, to belittle him, to despise him, to, to injure his reputation, because that would not be showing any kind of Christ-like love. That would not be dealing honestly and truthfully with a person at all, right? See how practical this instruction is? This is not just a nice platitude. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. No, it is to be exercised, needs to be applied. The Apostle Paul is speaking about here the relationships between fellow members of the body of Christ. You know, our Christian faith is something that needs to be worked out. It's a, it's a thing that is, is to be part and parcel of the demeanor of our whole life as we interact, as we live with brother and sister in the Lord, and as we, of course, deal with our neighbor. The Apostle Paul here is teaching much about human relationships in the body of Christ. Here, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness in a brother. It does not rejoice in any unrighteousness leveled at a brother. But it rejoices in the truth within the brother or sister, it rejoices in the truth being exercised towards the brother and the sister. And there we see our responsibility as Christians to make that happen. Indeed, congregation, by God's grace, we can. <clears throat> now, the point in all of this, of course, is that wherever the gospel is established in the hearts of his people, there will be the ethical fruit that demonstrates it as well lest we be charged with being Christians in name only. This high moral ground created by Christian love will be evident in his church. And of course, though we fall short, who doesn't? Yet nevertheless, this gives us no excuse to settle for that low kind of uh, Christianity, this low common denominator kind of Christian living where we excuse ourselves and allow ourselves to treat each other in a less than honorable fashion as Paul here would uh, direct and instruct us. <clears throat> Our Christian love is to be evident. And isn't that exactly how the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with us? Didn't he love you in the same way? Our Lord Jesus Christ did not delight at all in the evil in your heart. No, in fact, he came to destroy the evil in our hearts, to put it away from us, to cleanse us. He indeed was even crucified for our sakes, for our sins. He was crucified for the unloving hearts we have. And that makes our Lord Jesus Christ so impressive and so wonderful. That makes the Lord Jesus Christ so worth believing in. Here we see the logic of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only person who ever hated sin and, uh, and all its evil. Uh, he's the only person that ever hated it so much and had the power to deal with it rightly as well so that evil and sin would not have the last word in our lives, but His righteousness and grace and mercy would. No one ever hated sin like our Lord. No one ever rejoiced in truth like our Lord. No other religion, no other force can destroy the power of iniquity in our hearts. And then on top of that, to forgive us for it. And even more than to transform us into his image that we would bear 
that righteousness and holiness, that which is his, and indeed bear the very love of God we need so that we can rejoice in truth and hate iniquity. And that is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, congregation. That is something to rejoice in. Hey, Paul in verse speaks about rejoicing. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in our Lord Jesus Christ because he came to de destroy the power of iniquity so that we would be able to be the ones who rejoice in the truth. We so easily are prone to rejoice in what is wicked, to rejoice in what is pornographic, to rejoice in half-truths and lies, to rejoice in our own pride, our own goodness, our own accomplishments, to rejoice in whatever is not quite of the truth, if truth be told, about our sinful hearts. But here, congregation, Paul brings us to an example of what the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ does. And the love of God in Christ does for us, redeeming us from our sins and transforming us into his image. O congregation, receiving the love of God into your hearts, we're called to rejoice in truth and to hate unrighteousness. And that produces that high moral ground, that Christian character which was so exhibited in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, that high moral ground of, of God's grace, gracious love, and also working in our lives so that we begin to do his pleasure as he works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And that really was so uh, indicative of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Wherever he went preaching the gospel concerning himself, the gospel of his love for sinners, it had the effect of always driving out and dispelling that iniquity we think of how the Lord, when he went into the temple at the beginning of his ministry to, to drive out the money changers and those who bought and sold merchandise in his temple, he drove them out because they were full of iniquity, of greed and corruption. Jesus went about driving demons out of people because being demon-possessed, they were enslaved to iniquity. Our Lord exposed the fraud and hypocrisy of the Pharisees to drive it away from them, out of them, to bring them to repentance. Wherever Jesus preached his truth, his gospel of love for sinners, evil and pride was pushed back. Satan's kingdom was attacked and pushed back. He came to destroy iniquity and to establish the truth so that we as people could rejoice in it instead. And that boils down to, of course, his righteousness and his holiness 
and his goodness. This is love's high moral ground, congregation, for you and I to strive after and to hold fast to and to, and to rejoice in. Be praying for yourself, for your loved ones, for the church to maintain this high moral ground of Christian love. And when you practice that, guess what? You are, you are loving with Christ-like love for one another. Well, then in the second place, we move on to Paul's second point here, as we note verse 7. And there I wish to note with you, secondly, love's enduring benevolent character. That word benevolent, uh, children, simply means that which is good, that which is wholesome, that that what is helpful to you and good for you. That's what benevolent means. And that is what we see here in verse 7 where Paul writes, Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. There we have four important verbs in the sentence. Verbs are very important in, in, the, in the scriptures. Bears, believes, hopes, endures all things. In other words, love is very busy. <laughs> love is very busy as it is being exercised in our Christian lives by the Holy Spirit within us, of course. Now here again, the application of the text is very personal. It's, it's meant to be exercised towards each other as members of Christ's body. This love has all kinds of obligations. It has all kinds of expectations. This love has all kinds of hopes attached to it as well. Paul says love, it bears all things, believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Yes, before the face of God as we live, brothers and sisters, this is the character of love that must be exhibited in our lives for one another. Again, let's substitute the word Jesus for the word love in verse 7. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. And he endures all things. Jesus never fails. In other words, Jesus Christ sets the pattern for our love to one another. And it's a love that endures. It's a love that stays the course, if you will. It's a love that's full of goodness. It has a benevolent character. Love's enduring benevolent character. Again, let's, let's put Jesus Christ here in this verse. We could surely confess that Jesus Christ also bears all things for us. He is the one who bears up with our countless shortcomings. In heaven's high throne interceding for us, he bears with our poor attitudes Jesus Christ bears with our sinful likes and our wants. He puts up with all kinds of imperfections in our life. And so so must we for each other. Whether we think about our homes, we as husbands and wives need to bear with one another, be long-suffering toward each other. We need to bear with our children, our teenage kids. We, 
We need to bear with each other as brothers and sisters within this congregation. Neighbors need to bear with each other with neighborly love as they live on the same street, for example. They need to be kind and considerate. They may not have the option to be adversarial toward each other, but to get along. And with neighborly love, neighbors can get along with each other. This already makes sense in an unbelieving context, of course. How much more in the Church of Jesus Christ to bear with one another. And this is what love's enduring quality is, congregation. We bear with each other. It means we're not to be easily angered or put out by each other. Christ himself bore all things for us, bore all things from us. And guess what? He still loves us. Gives us no excuse to sin, but he still loves us. He even laid down his life to forgive you. And so here, congregation, we see Christian character. Who else could we see it in but the Lord himself? Here is Christian character that has a love-enduring, benevolent character. And so we see as we look at verse 7 how first, love bears all things. Secondly, Paul says, love believes all things. And we should right away note there, love believes all things that, of course, are good. Love believes all things that are of God. That only makes sense, right? So in that sense, love believes all things. And to explain this further, one author says, and listen carefully, Jesus Christ believes in us and is quietly confident for us. That might sound like a puzzling statement, but there's a truth here. Jesus Christ knows the good work that God has begun to do in us, and he will bring it to completion. Jesus knows that about us because of what God is doing in us. Likewise, Jesus knows of his own redeeming work being accomplished in us by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Jesus knows because we are his redeemed children, even elect of God, that therefore we are and will be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus believes this about us and that which is happening within us. And so he believes we will succeed in this Christian life because we are his sheep. We are the redeemed of the Lord. And those who he has in his hand, he says in John 10, in no way can anyone ever snatch them out of my hand. So in that sense, he believes that about us. And that is the idea here in verse 7. Love also believes all things. It believes all things good, of course. And that is the understanding here of the text. Love believes all those things that are of God, that are according to his word, that is indeed happening in our lives. And therefore, Paul can go on to say that love then also hopes all things. See the natural progression of one aspect of this love to the next. Love now also hopes all things. And therefore, going backwards, this love, of course, believes the best concerning our brother and sister. 
We do not want to believe in or look for the worst in our brother and sister in the Lord because that would be thinking evil of them. But we want to hope for and think of the best for them. Not that the worst will come to pass for them, but the best will come to pass for them. And so in this sense, love is filled with a kind of optimism as much as possible for our brother and sister, for our child, for our spouse, and so forth. This love, in a word, is hopeful. Can you imagine if all our loving was, was the exact opposite? Of, as of everything we did, nothing materialized for good. Everything flopped and failed. And no matter how good we were towards people, it always brought disaster. Is that all love could produce, we might say? No, Paul says, love, love it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things. It's hopeful. And that's why this love has a benevolent character attached to it. There's something very good about the love we seek to exercise as God works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And so this love congregation is called upon to see the good in our neighbor as much as that is possible rather than the worst. If we look for the worst, we're looking in completely in the wrong place. Then we're looking for trouble. But love seeks as much as possible to see the good in our spouse, in our covenant children, to give credit where credit is due, to give praise where praise is due. Such love thus believes all things so that it won't quickly give up on a person and say, you're, you're no good, I can't help you, you're beyond help. No, that's thinking the worst about the person. We, in that sense, believe in that person on account of, of, of him you know, being a, a covenant child, him receiving the gospel, him being under the influence of the gospel. We want to believe the best about the person. We don't easily give up on them. We don't at all want to tear him down. We want, in fact, to build him up. We don't want to look for his faults. We want to look where we see God's working in his life. That will be an encouragement to him. It's so easy to put somebody down. It's quite another to, to build them up and to nurture and to pray for the person and to hope all things will work out for good according, uh, according to, to, to God's love and providence. And, and so we pray for him. When we pray for a person, doesn't that suggest hope for the person? That's why we pray for him, that things will go well with him that he will receive the greater blessings of God in days to come. And so we're filled with hope, a sense of hope. Even though at the end of the day, years later, all those hopes might be dashed to pieces, that does not mean years back we should have not been praying. Hopefully all along we ought to do what's right, right? We ought to pray and act and love in the right way. And as is said, often we leave the final results to the Lord but he calls us to be what we are called to be. That in our love we bear all things, we believe all things right and good, we hope for all things in the same fashion. And then that brings us to that final point here, love therefore endures all things. It doesn't quit on the person, it doesn't give up on the church. As much as we seek to... Um, 
bear with people and believe in people when God is working in them and so forth and hoping all the best for the people. So we must exercise the very same attitude toward the church as a whole, as a congregation. We don't simply give up on the church when we, when we see something's not going quite right or things not going according to our particular fancy or we don't quite like what the minister's all been preaching about. Well, we're going to quit. We're going to walk out at him. No, we, we endure. We hang in there. It's our responsibility. We belong to the body of Christ. We have an obligation. We have expectations for its good. And we hope for God's blessings upon it. So we endure. We stick with. We, we hang in there, so to speak, individually, but also corporately as a body of Christ. And as we deal with members and our own brothers and sisters, even of our own families that are going through times of weakness and spiritually struggling and even going, going uh, astray, we, we endure with them. We seek to bring them back to the truth. We're patient with them through their rough times. We're patient with our children when they're still immature and we wish they were more mature. Then love endures and still believes the best of them, for them, and prays in that fashion, and therefore endures and bears with them. And so, Father, or so, congregation, we see how the love of Christ is very, very positive here. It fosters, it encourages, it's patient, it's benevolent, it's beneficial. It must be practiced as those redeemed by the blood of Christ. Again, look at our Lord Jesus Christ by way of example. He endured long with our souls, even to the point of death, suffering the agony of the cross for you and me. He endured for our sake. And having died for us, having been raised to eternal glory, he still endures with us when we by nature were born dead in sin, enemies of the cross of Christ by nature. He endured with us when we were young in our faith, when we were young teenagers and uh, sins of youth plagued us, you know what I mean? And we were not living the right way. Christ endured with us. When we were slow to learn, we didn't want to do our catechism lessons. We didn't want to go to church. Even then, Christ endured with us, slowly, patiently, leading us on in our Christian life. When we were careless in our living, Christ did not scratch us out of, his, out of the book of life. But he bore with us. He endured with us. Think of how the Lord Jesus had to endure the Apostle Paul, sorry, when he was still Saul of Tarsus, and he was persecuting the church, the worst enemy of the church then. Jesus suffered long for him, knowing what he was going to do to him, of course, but there was that endurance of the love of Christ, even toward one who was yet a mortal enemy of the church. And so, congregation, as we sum up here, I trust now you're able to see something of what this text now means when we say this love of Christ bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This love never fails. It's, of course, 
because this love is not of this world, but it is divine. It's the love of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is a love that still, I trust, keeps filling our hearts with hope, eh? the love and the hope produced by this love. And I might add here, just to conclude pretty much here, how this love of God is also wise. It's prudent, it's sober, it's biblical. This love of God in our hearts does not whitewash sin. It doesn't condone disobedience to God. This love uh, knows that unrepentant sin will not go unpunished. At times this love, even for our children, needs to be a tough love. It doesn't kind of wink at their sinfulness, but it also requires discipline and rebuke at times. But it's born out in love, isn't it? It endures, it's born out of that love. It believes and hopes all things for our child, as yet we seek to be a godly influence to them and praying that God will work in them too to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's a love that bears with struggling sinners. And guess what? Weren't we in the same camp at one time too? Perhaps some of us still are. But it's a love of God that endures for us. And it's a love that we therefore uh, creates hope within us. And where does this hope ultimately come from? Well, the power of God, the life of believers, the power of His grace, all of these given to the church with that hope. We pray. We pray in hope, do we not? Well, one author says here in conclusion, there's nothing that such love cannot face. There's nothing that this love cannot face. And I would simply add to that, by the grace of God, of course. By the grace of God, we can persevere in this love as we go through our common trials as a congregation, as we go through tribulation, as we deal with temptations, as we go through all sorts of circumstances, having this love, we can continue to give ourselves to each other for the good of one another, for the good of the church. I can't help but think of this one great example of our Lord Jesus when he was in Gethsemane, when he was pouring out his soul to God. And he was exceedingly sorrowful unto death. He did not consider himself, but he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He continued on to endure, to suffer, and to save us. Now that is love that bears all things for his people and believes all things for them and hopes all things and endures all things. Love of Christ, it never failed, did it? Paul says, love never fails. May your love for one another, congregation, also never fail. And may this love continue to shape you and to enable you to keep building your lives together as the body of Christ in this lovely way. Amen.